It's 1956. A plane from Paris touches down in New York City. On board is a petite, 83-year-old French woman named Alice. She's met by her granddaughter, her son, and her daughter-in-law. But this isn't a family holiday. This reunion has a purpose. So instead of hitting up Times Square or the Ziegfeld Theater to catch a screening of Around the World in 80 Days, Elise and her daughter-in-law make a trip to the Museum of Modern Art on 53rd Street in Manhattan. She speaks with the head film librarian and explains that she's looking for records of films, some that date back to the late 1800s. Elise and Roberta are given a stack of books and other materials. They start to go through them, one by one, page by page. In one of them, something catches Elise's eye. In the catalog of copyright entries of motion pictures, dated 1912 to 1939, she finds the name of four films. The Vampire, The Woman of Mystery, The Ocean Waif, and The Empress. Elise is overcome with excitement because staring back at her on the page is finally proof of her life's work. You see, Elise isn't your run-of-the-mill sweet French grandma. She's Elise Guy Blachet, a freaking film legend. The four titles she's found in that book are just the tip of the iceberg. Add another 996 to the list, and then you have the full picture of her cinematic imprint. But the films are lost, making her decorated resume impossible to prove. In her 20-year international career, she wrote, produced, or directed a thousand films, ran her own film studio, and created techniques we still see in today's blockbusters. Techniques like close-ups, split screens, synchronized sound, and special effects. Elise Guy Blachet was the world's first woman director, but now she's barely a footnote in film history. And that was no mistake. How did she go from a trailblazing industry first to being forgotten? Gatekeepers of history have their ways, but we're here to right that wrong. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That. I'm Takara Small. Today, the story of silent film maven Elise Guy Blachet. We'll chart her unparalleled career, put some respect on her name, and give her the flowers she's long deserved. Elise Guy Blachet didn't start in film. Actually, film wasn't even really film by the time she found her way to it. Motion pictures, as it was called back then, was really just that. A picture that could show motion, used to capture things like a train departing a station or a horse galloping. It was a brand new technology that no one was quite sure how to use. In 1894, when Elise was 21 years old, and known then as Elise Guy, she's hired as a secretary for a photography studio. She's at a photography studio, and they're just getting into motion for documentation for scientists and explorers. And she is very curious about the equipment because she wants to keep her job. This is Pamela Green, film director and producer. 
She directed a film about Elise called Be Natural, the untold story of Elise Guy Blachet. After discovering Elise by accident back in 2000 and being blown away by her story. As a tool of documentation, photography was a big deal. It brought things that were typically just illustrated to real life in incredible detail. Elise Guy, just stepping into this world, didn't know anything about the ins and outs of taking pictures. So at her job, she did any and everything she could to prove her value. Her youth almost kept her from being hired, and she desperately needed the job to support herself and her mother because her father had died three years earlier. She spends her day-to-day distributing the mail and mailing orders, but she slowly begins to learn about the craft by way of the supplies she has to order and inventory she manages. She befriends a colleague named Leon Gaumont, and by the next year, he buys the company where they're both employed. Elise shares an office with him and meets with some of the inventors, scientists, and professional photographer clients while assisting with the sales of camera equipment. While still photography proved to be a successful and accessible art form, in the background, there's a creative race for something bigger brewing. France and the United States are going head-to-head to be the first to capture and project moving images. Elise's friend, Gaumont, is buddies with the brothers leading this charge, Auguste and Louis Lumiere. He was close with the Lumieres because he was an industrialist and scientist and an inventor. And rolling with this circle had its perks. The Lumieres were ready to unveil their latest development in their quest to win the global race for film. Gaumont gets an invitation to a private screening for friends, and Elise finds her way on the list, not so much because she's in the club, but because she just happened to be nearby when the Lumieres were inviting Gaumont. He got invited to the screening and they said, oh, you know, Mademoiselle Guy, do you want to come? She experiences the first screening. It was from a machine called the Cinematograph that can record and project. And they showed several films. And she was completely blown away because she loved the technology. She was a nerd. The event that took place on March 22, 1895, would be known as the birth of cinema. Elise was hooked. It must have been as exciting as when Steve Jobs revealed the computer or the iPhone. And if you're a nerd, you can't wait to get your hands on something like that. And it's like, oh, what can I do? Let me try to do this. Let me try to do that. Can I do this? Can I do that? In the demonstration, Elise sees something beyond the technical wizardry of the cinematograph. On the screen that night, the Lumiere showed a short film titled Employees Leaving the Lumiere Factory. And yep, it's exactly what it sounds like. Workers clocking out for the day, heading home. Like everyone else in the room, Elise is blown away. But unlike them, she sees a missed opportunity with this simple everyday scene. There's a chance for something greater, something creative, She thinks to herself, why not use film to tell stories? Narrative films weren't really a thing at this time, so the idea of telling stories isn't an obvious one. But having had this brilliant light bulb moment, Elise doesn't waste time and gets down to figuring it out. Shortly after the screening, she goes to Gaumont proposing, hey, what if I shoot a few scenes? And his response shows that he didn't see Elise as a colleague, 
or a threat. He told me, well, that's a young girl's thing, indeed. Well, you can try, but on one condition. Don't let the male suffer. She hits the streets of Paris where she scouts a location and with some props and a couple friends gives this film thing a shot. The result? Elisa's first film, The Cabbage Fairy. So the scene opens with a very curvy woman dancing amongst this kind of sea of overgrown cabbage with a ton of ivy clinging to a gate behind her. It's really beautiful. It's poetic. It's like a real-life painting, but in action. She sees something in the cabbage patch below. She's reaching down and looks like she's going to pick up something. And instead of a vegetable, it's a baby. It's a very chubby-looking baby who's squirming and can't wait to hug her. Instead of comforting it, she puts the baby down and walks away to another piece of cabbage where she picks up another baby that's just as chubby and just as squirmy. She's happy, and it looks like she's ecstatic to have another baby to add to her bounty. She's like a little mini baby collector. She looks at the camera, gives a little wink, and then with one last twirl to the screen, the scene cuts to black. Made in 1896, the year after the Lumiere screening, The Cabbage Fairy was one of the first narrative films ever made. Something that blows my mind when I think about it is how do you have a sense of what makes for good cinema when there's no cinema to begin with? Elise and her crew were bright-eyed beginners. The cinematographer was actually raising chickens. He wasn't even a real cinematographer. (laughs) And he helped her. And that's really... The beginnings of anybody who's starting out in film school, you gather your friends, you gather whatever you can to create the the background, the sets, some costumes, and you try to tell a little story. But unlike her newbie chicken-raising cinematographer, Elise came to this new craft with storytelling already in her blood. Her grandmother would read her stories as a child and sing to her, but her father was a... Um, owner of bookstores in Chile, so she loved to read as a child. Elise's parents, also French, had relocated to Chile after marrying. Her father owned a bookstore and publishing company there, and her four siblings were born there. But when smallpox ravaged the country, the family moved to Paris, where Elise was later born. So already having a love of literature and storytelling— Elise basically took this new technical device that could record things and infused her own perspective to create stories. I mean, that's cinema in a nutshell. The storytelling may have come naturally, but the technical side? We're talking about the first generation of cameras. These things were not user-friendly. There were these boxes with magazines, and I don't think you knew necessarily what you were going to get. And if you weren't paying attention, if you didn't have the right lighting, stuff would be completely gone. Or the camera would just completely break and it wouldn't work. Or they would go back and try to see what they got and it was not even there. A ton of trials and tribulations that nobody experiences today in the digital world. The Cabbage Fairy is the match that ignites her career and cements Elise as a filmmaker. 
By 1897, Gaumont names her the head of film production at the Gaumont Company. From there, it's as if she's got a supercharged filmmaking battery in her back. She takes on the French industry. She makes her first films and begins to rack up all kinds of technical inventions and innovations. She creates double exposures and fade-outs for visions and dream sequences. She slows down and speeds up images to manipulate character movements and adds life and color to films, literally with hand-tinted color. Her creativity and use of locations, instead of sets like everyone else, help her create a signature style known as the Gaumont House Style. She quickly adds dozens of silent films to her roster that Gaumont uses for business demonstrations. The industry starts picking up a little buzz when folks realize there's some entertainment value in it. Elise is joined by some new competition in the film space. The Edison Company in the U.S. and Pathé and Star Film Paris in France are on her heels, but she keeps a steady pace ahead. Elise's glow-up isn't loved by everyone, though. She was an only in the all-boys club, and as film becomes more popular, and with popularity comes profits, her role is threatened. It was fine to let her experiment with stories when the only thing that was threatened was how fast the mail would be opened in Gaumont's office. But when real money is on the line? Suddenly, no one wants the girl around anymore. This is what she wrote in her memoir about the first attempts to ice her out. Quote, At the end of a year and a half or two years, the success proved such and the profits were so substantial that the board of directors decided to build a studio. This period was hard for me. I'd been left to work out along the difficulties at the beginning, to break new ground. But when the affair became interesting, doubtless lucrative, my directorship was bitterly disputed. However, I was combative, and thanks to President Gustav Eiffel, who always encouraged me with kindness, the whole board of directors, recognizing my efforts, decided to leave me at the head of the service. End quote. And, yeah, President Eiffel is the Eiffel you might be thinking of, as in the famous Parisian landmark that bears his name. Elise gets to walk off doing what I picture to be an early 1900s twirl on her haters. But that failed ousting wasn't the end. It was a first try that would come back harder the next time. Elise was about to learn she had to watch her back at all times. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. With her position as head of film production at the Gomong Company secured, Elise gets back to doing what she does best, creating. As a result of proving herself worthy enough to stay, insert eye roll here, Elise goes from working by herself with the help of a cameraman to leading a team. She hires two assistants, a set designer, and a secretary of her own. She trains incoming writers and other directors, and with her new crew assembled, She leads production meetings every Monday. Running a studio and managing a team add more to her plate, but even with the greater responsibilities, Elise finds ways to push her own films and innovations forward. In 1905, she makes the first film for the new, decked-out Gaumont studio, Esmeralda, a film based on the hunchback of Notre Dame. In the work to come, she adds to her tally of techniques with new creations she's innovated, like close-ups and special effects with actors floating off the ground. She goes deeper into narrative filmmaking, writing serious roles for children, which wasn't really being done elsewhere, making comedies depicting real-life scenarios like pregnancy, and giving a wink-wink, nudge-nudge to ideas of modesty with films that back then were considered a little raunchy, clutch pearls, like The Sticky Woman. One of my favorites, by the way. It's not lost on me that, as a woman, the themes that led to these innovations would have been on her mind, too. And if all that wasn't enough, in 1906, she tackles her biggest film to date, La Vie du Christ, made up of 25 episodes, a big jump from her earlier work. There are numerous sets and storylines, and the cast has 300 extras. So it's clear, Elise was killing it, and her success was the Gomong Company's too. But word was getting out about the lucrative nature of the film industry, meaning that more folks were trying to find their way to it, and meaning that Elise now has to watch her back in a different way. The new crop of filmmakers are approaching the work differently, Instead of looking for what hasn't been done, like Elise, they're thinking efficiency. Why start from the ground up when you can just copy what's been done? Elise has to worry about theft from inside of her own company, from the actors to the janitors. The stealing becomes so common that the Gomong company and other production houses put their logos in the scenes so people know who made what. In the face of such fierce competition, Elise has to give everything to her work, which means there's not much left for her personal life. A rare thing for a then 33-year-old woman in 1906, when marriage and family is major life goals. At 33, she was officially a spinster. But don't they say the best places to meet people are doing the activities you love, right? Elise traveled the world making films for Gaumont, and it was while working on a project in Berlin that she met Herbert Blaschet, another Gaumont employee. 
They married just months later. And in a move that no one saw coming, maybe even Elise herself, she resigns from her position. The woman who seemed to live to work just quit to be a housewife. She set sail for the United States to begin her new life with Herbert. She must have even surprised herself a bit, because she wrote in her own memoir, quote, Three days married, I left my family and my country with a heavy heart, persuaded that I was abandoning my fine meteor forever. End quote. And Herbert, she meets someone who would help her reach new heights. But he would also later help take her down. More on their life in the States together after the break. We arrive in New York at 4 o'clock in the morning. The view of liberty lighting the world. The sight of skyscrapers in the fog could not chase my sadness. I saw all that through tears when I tried to stop in vain. All around me, I heard exclamations of enthusiasm in a language of which I understood not one word. It's 1907. A seasick and newlywed Elise Guy Blachet begins her new life in America with her 24-year-old husband, Herbert. Their time in New York is brief. They're whisked off to Cleveland, Ohio, where Herbert, who does speak English, is tasked with promoting the Gaumont's chronophone, an early talkie machine that syncs music to film, an invention that Elise had worked to perfect. Elise, the now former film maven, spends her time learning English, settling into the role of a wife, and getting accustomed to the American way of life. And soon, she's pregnant, with a baby girl on the way. But her domestic interlude doesn't last long, thank God. Herbert's sales work is a bust, but Gaumont sends him a life raft by offering a job in their new factory in Flushing, Queens, where they develop and print films. Maybe it was being a little closer to the action, or maybe it was an internal flame catching a spark. But once they're in Flushing and Elise is around the studio, she slowly dips her toes back into the film pool, directing a few of those phono scenes here and there with American actors. I'd like to imagine her walking around the studio, hearing faint cries of Elise, use me, coming from the cameras. Because when Elise realizes the Gaumont Studios aren't being used every day, she decides to rent a space from her old employer and make films again. Just like that, she's back. And this time, not under Leon Gaumont. After being a Gaumont employee her entire career, she strikes out on her own, creating her own company, Solax. Her first order of operation? Figuring out what in the world Americans like to watch and sprinkling a little of her Elise razzle-dazzle onto it to make it great. Turns out that wouldn't be a huge leap for Elise. American cinema was way behind. Remember that lead the French established at the start of film in 1895? Well, they, and I'd venture to say Elise in particular, had maintained it. From the film subjects, to the technology, to even the way of projecting films. Americans were catching up. 
And Elise uses that to her advantage to show them what she's got that they've been missing. She leans hard into cowboy films because they're trending. They take off so quickly that in no time, Solax goes from making one production a week to three. She has to hire assistant directors to keep up with the demand. The Solex star continues to rise, and she forms a stable of actors known as the Solax Players. By 1911, Solax was doing so well that Elise and Herbert buy a property in Fort Lee, New Jersey, just on the other side of Manhattan from Queens, where Elise builds a massive three-story studio of her own with the latest and greatest in film technology. Cropping up around them in what's becoming Hollywood 1.0 are a bunch of American studios, Fox, Paramount, and Universal Studios, the biggies that we all know today. At the new Solax studio, Elise produces an overseas production for her team and also continues to write and direct her own work. Wow, might I mention, also raising two kids since she had a son the previous year. Always attuned to the social and political climate around her, Elise's films take on a more powerful subject matter. Let's hear from filmmaker and Elise's biographer, Pamela Green, again. She just took on political issues and put a comedic spin, but also did serious films. Everything that she saw, she documented with her eyes and then turned them into stories. Making of an American Citizen is about immigration. She talked about Planned Parenthood, racism, and a lot of her films have women at the helm. Let's be honest, even now that's unusual. She was ahead of her time and ours. In the same span, she makes the film A Fool and His Money that breaks barriers with the first all-Black cast. Now, it's 1912, So this film definitely reflects the times, a.k.a. it has some serious issues and definitely wouldn't fly now. But for that period, it was groundbreaking because the depiction of Black people hadn't been seen in that way up until that point. To put things into perspective, D.W. Griffith didn't release The Birth of a Nation, that racist mess of a film, until three years later. In its own way, A Fool and His Money, with its all-Black cast, was Elise trying to take a stand against racism. When the white actors originally hired to co-star in the film refused to work with Black actors, saying would be, quote, an irreversible dishonor, she ups and makes the whole thing a Black affair anyways. Elise is back on top, and on her own terms. She has her own studio, she's making groundbreaking films, and she's taking all her hard work from the earliest years of film and putting that into gear to beat the Americans at their own game. And all the while, her husband is still working for Gaumont. He's middle management now, and he's jealous of Elise. She's a maker and an innovator in a money-making business. She's a boss who hires men like him to work for her. Sensing a total eclipse on the horizon, in 1913, he looks to get in on Alice's Solak success and live out his own film fantasy. Here's Pamela again. 
It was jealousy. He couldn't handle the way people respected her and appreciated her and looked up to her. And he wanted to do what she was doing. He wanted to be the director. He wanted to make movies. When his contract with Gaumont ends in June, Elise makes Herbert president of Solax. He can handle the business aspects of the company so she can play to her strengths and focus on the creative. But to Herbert, that's not far enough out of her shadow. He resigns three months later and get this, starts his own film company, Blaché Features. He uses the Solex studio, film equipment, and actors. Now, creatively, Herbert didn't hold a torch to Elise, giving off what we consider now to be big, mediocre white dude energy. He releases his first works, and to others, it looks like Elise was behind the whole thing helping him out. For a while, the two companies coexist, but slowly, Blaché features inches past Solax. She's actually not pressed about it and supports Herbert. She even directs some of his films. But in being that dutiful wife, she fails to see that this opens the door for Herbert to ruin what she's built with Solax. Herbert's shady antics aside, there is a perfect storm brewing both inside the film world and outside of it that made Elise's place in film less sturdy. In 1914, World War I is getting its start, and the economic depression in the U.S. is causing all kinds of financial challenges. Film production starts to look a little bit different. It became more of an assembly line production business, and to be able to do the things that Alice was doing just wasn't going to work anymore, and the funding wasn't there because it was hard to get distribution. Things in the business were changing a lot. So to become an independent filmmaker was difficult. Thomas Edison, who had a monopoly on the U.S. film industry and for years had been calling the shots, sinks his hooks in a little deeper, saying that unless you join his boys club called The Trust or pay a licensing fee, you can't use his film equipment. The other guys in the group call same for their stuff too. This leads a lot of the companies in Fort Lee to flee out west, where it's cheaper to work. Including Herbert, who in 1918 hightails it out to California, where he takes up with another woman, after blowing nearly $785,000 in today's money on bad investments. Nice going, Herbert. This blows up their family, and Elise has a tough decision to make. He basically left her for another woman and didn't really take care of those children. So Alice was already 50, having to raise two children. Her career was somewhat in question because the industry was changing. And she put her children first. She chose to take care of her family over the industry. Elise tries to hold on to film in what little way she can by working with her former competitors, Pathé. She writes and directs what would be her final film, tarnished reputations in 1920. Solax, ravaged by the big industry shifts and the Blaché's financial woes, goes bankrupt and shuts its doors the following year. To support her family, now as a single parent, Elise sells the studio's furniture and returns home to France. 
Elise Guy Blaché's decades-long career had unraveled at an almost unbelievable pace. In 1923, while Herbert Blaché enjoys the good life having five of his films released, Elise and her kids live off the money she makes selling her jewelry and later her furniture. With more than enough hardship and disappointment to grapple with, the universe throws her another stinging blow, one that would cause a vanishing ripple effect to her name and legacy forever. In 1930, her former boss, Leon Gaumont, publishes a history of the Gaumont Company. It doesn't mention a single work made before 1907. So, Elise, who had left to start a married life and then her own studio, was completely cut out. Despite making The Cabbage Fairy in 1896 and so many other groundbreaking films and innovations for Gaumont, It's like some active campaign to erase her accomplishments was agreed upon by the entire industry. Historians begin to credit her work to her former male assistants and colleagues. Writers reference other women as the, quote, first female directors. Even a documentary that features what remained of the Solak Studios credits Herbert, not her, for creating it. In 1941, Leon Gaumont tries to right those earlier wrongs by reaching out to Elise in hopes of getting her notes so that a new history of the Gaumont company could be written, but this time including her. Elise works with him to do it, but when Gaumont dies in 1946, the work they did dies with him. Elise sets out to correct public record and look for her work herself. Which brings us back to that trip to New York with her son and his family in 1956. That trip was another attempt to fight for her name. After spotting her four works in that catalog, Elise and her daughter-in-law traveled to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., with the hopes of finding the physical films there. Unfortunately, it's a dead end. Elise goes back to France empty-handed. The following year, she's invited to the International Federation of Film Archives Conference in Paris, where she's acknowledged for her work and even shares space with some of those historians that have discredited her. She challenges them in person. And with that small triumph, putting some wind in her sails, she decides to ask people at the conference to help her find her films. She gets a break when a fellow filmmaker and now collector tells her he'd found three of her works. Two full films. The Stepmother, a bold film that discusses child abuse. The Child of the Barricade, that chronicles a young boy out to run a simple errand who gets swept up in a neighborhood warfare and a clip of a third. This would be the only work she'd find in her entire lifetime. Right now, in my mind, I'm rewinding the film of Elise's life and her amazing life's work, and this time I'm looking at it from a different angle. It's easy to see it for the innovation, the creativity, the mind-blowing, how on earth did you think of these things when they literally didn't exist? Pamela, who was directly impacted by her chance discovery of Elise, quickly saw it too. It just didn't stop the things that she was doing. I think she was an incredible writer. She understood the camera. She knew where to put it. 
she understood production design. To write, direct, and produce a thousand films where 150 are with synchronized sound, you know, like music videos of the time, with special effects and production design and having a studio with over 300 employees, state-of-the-art, and having a two-decade career is impressive today to be able to last that long and to do all these things. It took me 10 years to make Be Natural, and that's only one project. (laughs) But from where I sit now, all I can see is a more frustrating side of this amazing story. Elise Guy Blachet was there at the beginning, like literally in the room as a massive technological and entertainment revolution got its start. With her brilliance, she made something out of nothing. She pushed an art form forward and made a groundbreaking template. And sure, they couldn't have totally known how far it would lend itself to future generations, but it was still unmistakably special. However, the second money comes into play, she's considered disposable. It is wild. For a quick buck, her company would rather lose her genius and artistry for the cash. And if we're really digging into this, to protect the fragile male eagle. And sad to say, it's become a powerful template in itself. This gatekeeping has taken on new forms and has continued to affect women in film. It wasn't until 1977 that the first woman was even nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director, Lena Wertmuller, in case you're wondering. And it wasn't until 2010, more than 100 years after The Cabbage Fairy, that Catherine Bigelow became the first woman to win it. That narrative can make it seem like women are new to film or not as experienced, but women were there at the beginning and Elise brought their stories with her. I'm not gonna lie, it still makes me wonder what other talent we may have missed out on. Like who else was there from the beginning what other early works might be lost, at least for the moment? What history should we correct next? Tell us. Next time on They Did That. Because here was a company who was interested in her invention. And when it came to meeting face-to-face, then that's when tables were turned. They Did That is presented by me. Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker. Our associate producer is Camila Kashani. This episode was edited by Lizzie Jacobs with additional editing support by Keith Romer and Tiara Darnell. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>